okay, great. Yeah, we're also going to talk a little bit about an anxiety too, because yeah. it's a double whammy. Absolutely, okay. it's, they're yeah, the yeah, hollow yeah. notes of mental illness. <laughs> truly, truly. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got the sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I think everyone with depression ends up addressing it in some way, hopefully a good way, like they identify it as a problem, talk to medical professionals, make a plan of well-tested, healthy options. But addressing it can also mean taking a different direction, like behaviors or substances that numb you up or distract from the real problem. On this episode, someone who has sampled a little from platter A, a little from platter B. I am Naomi Paragon. I am a stand-up, a writer, an actor, and I am in Los Angeles right now. Naomi Paragon is a stand-up comedian with appearances on Two Dope Queens and Late Night with Seth Meyers. She's written for Broad City, Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, and the sitcom Great News. She's engaged to comedian Andy Beckerman, whom she refers to as Jubu. Her boo, who's Jewish. Jubu. This is where I blame Jubu's whiteness. Okay, because he couldn't just apologize. He had to say something. He had to give me a song and a dance, you know? <laughs> it was like, he was like, well, see, um, I thought what the huh, the who, the what. <laughs> and it was like, Jubu, stop talking, baby. Because I know you know I'm right. <laughs> and you want to know how I knew? Because the bitch was blushing. Come on, white people. Come on. Walking around here like human mood rings. You done turned a color. I know. You know you wrong. You pink up in here. I was expecting you to be in New York. I associate you so heavily with New York. So do I, John. I'm struggling. I'm going to New York next week. <laughs> yeah. Do you live out in L.A. now? I live in L.A. now. You know, I try to get back to New York whenever I can. Um, what I'm going to be doing is, like, I'm leaving next week and I'm going to have a month there. So, obviously, it coincides with the holidays, but it was really just an excuse to get out there and do shows and stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you want to be somewhere as cold and brutal as possible for the month of December. I am telling you, I will take it over L.A. any day. Really? I'm telling you. You want to talk about depression? (laughs) Yes, I do. That's the whole reason I started a show. (laughs) (laughs) Naomi grew up in Harlem, mostly just her and her mom. Quiet kid, big reader, dreamed of being an actor, but didn't know how to go about that. When she was 10, she enrolled at the elite and highly competitive Dalton School. And that was... Huge. And, um, you know, I, from being around mostly black people to being around white people to being around <laughs> rich people to being, you know, uh, I'm about 5'8", but I'll tell you when I was 10, I was probably like 5'5 five, five or 5'6". Five, like, I've always been tall and bigger than the other kids. And like, so I just stuck out 
like a sore black thumb. And <laughs> um, but I was also still like kind of quiet and shy. It took a couple years of being at that school. I it's it's where I think I developed my sense of humor. It's where I realized, okay, I'm not one of the pretty girls. Um I'm not like a cool kid, but I but I have a sense of humor. I can be I can be funny. It's always hard to tell exactly when depression really hits. It's not like breaking your arm. You don't fall out of a tree and boom, depression. But at this new school, something was wrong. I went to the school counselor like those first two years of uh, going to that private school. I did see the school counselor a lot. I would cry like every day that first, especially that first year. It was just like. I just feel so out of place and nobody liked me and or I felt, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure it was more like they probably didn't care either way. But I right. was like, so like no one likes me. Um, and so but there was never any discussion of maybe she needs a medication or something. It was never or like maybe this is clinical depression. And I think, you know, that's also compounded by. My personal experience of black people, I do. I never want to paint us with a wide brush, um, but depression was considered white people shit. Yeah. Depression, anxiety, all that mental illness was like, that is what you get when you have privilege. You get the time to be worried about right. how you feel inside after all your bills done been paid. Right. <laughs> you chilling right. in your apartment. There was a time, and sometimes I'm like, I do stand up for the 15-year-old version of me who thought, she was so by herself and nobody else felt the way she did. 15 being the age when Naomi's depression really hit hard. How did the depression manifest itself? It manifested itself in the smallest slight sending me into a tailspin. So, so a friend not calling me back, certainly a guy not liking me back, oh my lord, <laughs> <laughs> would be, you know, the reason to cry and stay in the house and not leave and not talk to anybody for days. Yeah. Um, and so you could say there was an outward trigger, right? Like something would have happened. But I see the depression being taking that thing and making it so much bigger and so much more life-defining. You know, I would take any rejection as the fundamental proof that I was unlovable and I was inadequate. Mm. And that to me is, that was for me, looking back, that's depression telling you that. It's not an isolated incident. It is simp It is like, this is these, these are the facts. You better accept it now. You're trash and you're going to die alone, you know? So anytime something went wrong, it was proof of the central thesis that you're yes. horrible. Yes. But then yes. when things went right, I'm sure it didn't work the other way around. No, no, that was a fun fluke. <laughs> and hopefully no one will find out, yeah. which stands today, which still stands uh -huh. 20 years later. Right. But, um, right, like I would have the moments. And, you know, and I was a good student academically, and that is where I would kind of put my confidence. You know, that feeling of like, look, I got the good grade. Um, but it didn't, it still felt like I was like, well, you better be smart because you're ugly. Mm. You know, like it was. It, so it was never... I could never really take full joy in anything that was happening. Were you getting that message at home or from people from school or just from society in general? I felt it in, you know, I felt it in school. Nobody, nobody said to me, you're ugly. Like, I can't remember that happening, certainly not at high school age. But that feeling of, you know, there was such a uh, 
such a clear and strict standard of beauty. It was to be skinny. It was to be white. It was to be blonde. And I wasn't those things. And I didn't have boyfriends, you know? Like, I didn't have requited crushes. You know, not, I mean, boyfriends as much as, you know, how serious relationships can be when you're, like, um, 14 or something. But I never had it. I was I was the friend. I had, but I was not the person, you know, anyone wanted. Every now and then, if someone liked me, it was usually not someone I liked. But then I felt like maybe I should just be with them because beggars can't be choosers. And that's not good. Um, so, um, but, and, and you know, I, obviously so much of this for me is true. It, it, it So much was linked to crushes and relationships and being loved. And it's not that, and maybe, hey, maybe it's like the total cliche of like my dad left when I was five and I was like, somebody hold me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that was, you know, it was about, the idea that people didn't like me, whether it was romantic or, you know, platonic, was my primary concern for so long. Okay, it can be difficult to trace the source of one's depression. You have circumstances, trauma, genetics, and there's only so much that science really knows about that big bucket of goo in your head called your brain. But Naomi's father left when she was five and then later she gets depressed and is desperate for approval from anyone, from everyone. Do you remember your dad leaving? No, I just remember him being gone. Um, and I remember I have like flashes of like my memory when I was a small child when my parents were there. But I will say the memories I have were of them arguing. Um, nothing like, no, nothing violent, you know, nothing. But I just, but I just that memory of like being four years old and them being really tall and me like looking up at them face to face arguing for some reason that's like an image I have. And then he was like gone. And then it was actually the same year that I started Dalton, uh, that my father reappeared in my life. He had been gone a good five years. I had no idea where he went. I assumed I would tell people if they asked, which wasn't frequently, I would say he died because I just didn't know. <laughs> so I was like, mm, probably that's what happened. Wow. Uh, so Yeah, I've given you a lot to unpack, John. Yeah, <laughs> this is why we do this. So uh, <laughs> how did he come back? So this I will never fucking forget. I was home by myself. Um, my mom had just like gone to a friend's house. She wasn't far and we lived in an apartment building. So, you know, there's like layers of protection. I wasn't like, you know, home alone in the suburbs anyway, but she had gone to a friend's house. I was sitting at home alone and I get a phone call. I was like 11. So it was like the sixth grade. I get a phone call. I, the phone, I pick it up, you know, I'm like, hello. And then the, and then there's a man's voice and he's like, hello is, uh, is this Naomi? And I go, yes. And then he goes, do you know who this is? And I go, no. And he goes, this is your father. She thought he was dead. Then he called her. And I freak the fuck out, hang up the phone. And in our building, like, there was, like, at the very last channel of television was, like, a closed circuit where you can, like, pretty much just see the camera in the lobby of the building. And I literally just had the TV on that. I was, like, so scared someone was coming for me. And I was, like, just sat on the couch terrified. And then when my mom came home, I was like, my, my this man called. And, and he said, like, I was all over, like, in my head. And my mother was like, yeah, 
okay, yep, then that was probably your father. It turned out he had been on drugs. You know, he had gone off to, like, get clean. He had another kid. And uh, it turned out that they were in Brooklyn. Wow. I'm in Manhattan. Are you kidding me? Like, all of this was revealed that same year I started Dalton. And it oh, was, like, geez. a lot happening at once. That he was <laughs> that he was a train right away. Yeah, that he was a train right away. And that I had a sibling. You know, and I consider myself to be an only child because, as I said, it was just me and my mother. And that's who I was raised with. And even now, I don't have a relationship with those siblings. But there was a time when, you know, when my dad did come back, I would say, yeah, from middle school to high school, we would do that. Like, you know, I would see him, you know, would do the weekend. I'd go to his place and, you know, get to know these siblings. But it very much always felt like I was going through the motions. Do you think there's a connection between that absence and that traumatic return to the depression that developed? I, it's funny, and uh, this might be the first time saying, I'm like, well, maybe that was the reason. But um, maybe, but then I always felt like it was something I was supposed to be happy about. You know? Like, he was back. Wasn't I supposed to like this? Yeah. But it always felt like there was, I, and I think I deal with it now, too. I have a lot of anger that I was, I felt like I was never able to get out. Um. And sometimes, I, you know, depression is that, you know, that's all that stuff turned inward. Yeah. And, and I definitely do think that that feeling of I can't control any of y'all, y'all being like the friends, your parents, you know, whether they're there or not. Right. Um, certainly how they respond to things. Um, that it was like, I, but I could be mad at myself. You know, or like I was the part I could control, so I was the part that was supposed to be better. Better in what way? I don't know. Better in like, especially to, I've always like struggled with food and stuff, and it was like, you stop eating so much and stop, like, just be chill. Chill. I always want to be chill. I always uh-huh. want to be not wound so tight and not care so much. How's that worked out for you? <laughs> um, I do comedy. Um, I need <laughs> approval constantly. Right. So that must have been strange too. Like being uh, one of the only, I imagine, one of the only black kids at Dalton, uh, yeah. and from Harlem, and then your friends. You know, you look at the lives they have. If they have like a mom and a dad, yeah. and it must have made you feel in just so many more degrees isolated. Definitely. And such an awareness of, you know, my mom is an attorney. Like, we were doing good as yeah. black people. You know what I mean? And then I get to Dalton and I'm like, oh, am I poor? <laughs> like, it's like, no. Like, you know, it wasn't easy, but it was also like, again, like, we were working. I was going to a good school. All right, so a lot going on here. Missing dad, reappearing dad, reappearing dad having been secretly living one borough over with a new family, being different in many ways at a school with lots of pressure, plus depression and anxiety, which took a long time to get diagnosed. It was not until uh, college. It was not until 
the summer after freshman year because what I had started to do my freshman year of college was I, towards the end, like second semester in the spring, I started cutting, which is something I hadn't done before. Wow. And so I had gone to, you know, the counselor on campus, I think. And, um, and what campus was this? Where did you go? Oh, this is Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And I love Wesleyan. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame Wesleyan. I think I would just blame somebody who doesn't have the, you know, who I didn't have, like, the emotional uh, strength for what it is to be suddenly thrown into uh, a social life 24-7. Again, I was an only child. I was used to having my alone time and suddenly to have a roommate to leave, leave the room. Like you, I was just never alone. And it was just, everything just felt like it was so, so much more intense, so much more of a pressure cooker. Um, of course, there were some, also some crushes that were super intense. And, you know, again, you're coming from, I was somebody who didn't have a lot of experience with like relationships and guys and I got a boyfriend and then there were like the questions of sex or no sex. And you know what I mean? Like I think all of it, it's just like whatever happens when you like go away from home and get to do what you want to do for the first time. And it was like a little too much for me. And, um, I started, I, I was cutting, I had gone to the student, that counselor. And then that summer he was like, he's like, I, I have somebody in New York city who you can go see. And, Funny enough, that man's office was two blocks away from Dalton. I was like, oh, good. We're near where it all began. Let's begin. (laughs) Um, And I will say I saw saw him, I would say for maybe about seven, ten years, like off and on. You know what I mean? Like he was the first person to uh, prescribe me Selexa. That was like what I started with Mm -hmm. um, in college. Uh, And he was the first person to say like, you're depressed. So it wasn't until I was 18 how did that feel to hear that? The mix, the mixed combo of yes, I like I, I love a diagnosis and that I liked I because it externalizes it in a way. Because for me, it had always been like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be chill? Why can't you calm down? You know, I was the queen. I was I'm too much as a person. You know what I mean? Uh, why can't I? And so to hear that there was something going on on a chemical level that it wasn't simply just a personality flaw was uh, good. Uh, but then at the same time. To know that it was something at a chemical level was this feeling of like this is fundamental, right? And will it will it improve? You know, I found myself you know taking and you know with any medication they'll be like it takes six to eight weeks or however long you know and that feeling of okay what's what's an improvement supposed to feel like? Um, so I spent a lot of those early couple of years so hyper. Is this working? Am I better? Am I different? What's different? Does it mean less crying or does it mean less like caring about stuff? Should I be dull? Should I be numb? Should, you know, what I mean? like, I, it was just so much of that thinking on top of it. Naomi mentioned cutting herself in college. And in terms of mental health, cutting could mean one or several of a lot of different things. It can be a symptom of borderline personality disorder. It can be associated with depression, with substance use, anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenia. And on top of that, it could be hard to understand for anyone who hasn't gone through it. Why? How could you cut yourself on purpose? I do not remember what the specific, the very first time, what the inciting incident was. But what I remember was like, I am in so much emotional pain. I have to externalize this. I literally compared it to, in my mind, to that idea of bloodletting. When someone, you know what I mean? Like, Like for me, it was like, get this out of me. 
And I remember in the beginning, it would work. There would be this, you know, it, it would calm me down in a weird way. It would, And I would just kind of like, I could like just like lay down and be chill. And now I've shifted focus from like the pain in my heart, for lack of a better term, to like the pain in my arm. Mm. It was it was it was an active shift because I would cut and then the work would then become about, OK, well, now you have to clean this up. And it, it would just literally like give me a different thing to focus on. The good news is that eventually she stopped cutting. The bad news? I started to drink and it was and I pretty much drank from ages 19 to 26. And I will say when I found alcohol, the cutting went away. Mm. But I realized it was they were, they were both for me medicinal. But the thing was, drinking was the socially acceptable one. So I just leaned into that. I was like, the whole point is numb. The whole point is numb. Whatever I can do to numb. Oh, we're all drinking now? I can do that. And no one's looking at my drinking like, that's sick. Or that's a problem. Yeah. There aren't bars Um, you can go to where everybody's just standing around cutting their arms. No, no. And And a band plays. (laughs) The cover would be too high, John. I don't. I don't think any of us would. The janitor would be furious. I think. (laughs) Oh God, the bleach smell. The bleach smell at the end of the night. So was college where where comedy got started then? Yes, it was. It was when I did. I started improv. That was where I did it for the very first time. You know, I wasn't someone who grew up as like a comedy nerd. I knew like a couple of comedians, mostly Chris Rock. Um, Most of the comedians you knew were Chris Rock. Yeah, that was like the comedian I knew. I was like, <laughs> I like him. He's funny and good. Um, I, that's it. And then I tried improv because people were like, oh, you're funny. You should do this. And, you know, you start college. You're like, yeah, it's college. I'll try new things. And so I gave it a try. And really, uh, I really ended up liking it. And so that's how it started. But the kind of improv we would do, you would get a suggestion from the audience. Someone would tell a monologue. And then you would do scenes off that monologue. So that monologue was kind of my intro to stand-up. Ah. I realized that was the part I liked the best. I liked the part where someone would just give a word and you would just like play and riff and make them laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there I dabbled in stand-up a little bit. Um, and my first job out of college, I was an actor with the National Theater of the Deaf, which is based in Connecticut. And uh, we toured mostly schools. It was educational children's theater. Um, and then... That was about a year, and then when that was up, I like got into stand up again. I got into improv in New York and got into stand up, and that's kind of how I started. You know, dipping my toe because I was from the city. You know, I could do a bar show and people would actually show up. So then people, so then people would put me on more shows. <laughs> they were like, "Oh, she brings people." I was by no means good in the beginning, but I think they were like, "Oh, good, ten new people showed up at the bar. Let's get Naomi back." <laughs> so there are some forces colliding here. We know she's depressed and drinking, and she's performing where? In bars. At the same time, Naomi's trying to get a comedy career going. She has that dream. She's going for it. Can she keep everything balanced? Well, she tried. I never drank when I did stand-up. Okay. I said to myself, I want my clear head, because alcohol would slow me down. So I knew, I was like, I don't want to drink maybe after my set, I will. But before, I was going in clear. I wanted to be as fast as possible. I I wanted to get good. And I knew that if I started stand-up with any kind of crutch, I was never going to be able to. So I always kept it separate. Stand-up was sober. But after the set, (laughs) the hanging out, all bets are off. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I will say part of – I'm sober. You know, I there was a relapse. So much to unpack, John. But I I got so – you know – 
I got sober because what I found was the drink, you know, the drinking and the in, the intensity with which you can drink on a college campus where it's and it's not always safe, not by any means, but it was very different once I was drinking on the streets in New York City. Yeah. And trying to get home. And I remember once being kicked off the subway. I had gotten to the last stop and the conduct like I fell asleep. The conductor came and woke me up. I was like by myself and I was like, holy shit. Like that was a huge moment of like, you know, it's New York City. It's like anybody could have robbed me, could have, you know, assaulted me. I was out. And then like had to get up and stumble, found a cab. I had no cash, but then remembered somehow I was like, I know I have cash in the house. So I like get the cab to drive me off and I go, stay here, stay here. I got money inside. I like run inside, grab a 20, give him a 20 on a $6 ride. Uh, and it's just like, oh, thank geez. you. And it's like, man. Um, <laughs> and that was part of the, because, because what I realized was, and this is the thing, right? With this business, how, how I've always struggled with, how do you have these dreams of greatness, these dreams of being on television, these dreams of playing to packed houses, but you have no desire to get out of bed and you don't want people to look at you? They can't, they can't both exist. Um, or rather, one of them's got to be bigger, way bigger than the other. When, um, when did you confront that paradox? At, at around 26. It, it was that, and, and again, it was, again, I'll say, you know, like, getting kicked off, yeah, as I said, like, getting kicked off the subway, or just, or generally, it was more this feeling of, um, I no longer had the ability to dream. Um, and I know that sounds flighty, but I will say, it's like, I got to a point where I could no longer even suspend disbelief to imagine my dreams coming true. I think people know this, but just a reminder, alcohol is a depressant. Therefore, drinking all the time is not a really good idea for someone dealing with depression. At this point, Naomi is at bottom. Hear how she travels back up in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation. I'll grant you that. But makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Just a reminder that your support makes this show possible. Your donations make this show exist and help us be strong and help us grow and help us make a lot more episodes so we can help a lot more people. We're all in this together, and we're willing to give you some stuff. If you go to hilariousworld.org slash donate, you can peruse our selection of thank you gifts. We have the enamel pin available at any level. Any donation you make, you can get that enamel pin. At the $5 a month level, 
Hilarious World of Depression socks. Yep, Thwad socks are available for you at the $5 a month level. They're handsome, and you know, you wear them, and they're right there under your pant leg and under your foot. It's like a little secret that you have of how much you support this program and support what we're doing here. And at the $10 a month level, we have the t-shirt, the Depressed State t-shirt. It's lettered just like a college t-shirt, except instead of saying Montana State or Minnesota State, it says Depressed State. Go Saddies. It's gray, of course, and it has the Hilarious World of Depression logo on the back. That's available at the $10 a month level. So check it all out. Go on a computer to the World Wide Web at hilariousworld.org donate. Help support the show. Help keep us strong. Help us grow. Help us keep talking about it. Thank you. Back with comedian, writer, actor Naomi Perrigan. Here she is in 2016 on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Friends, I am at a crossroads. I mean that health-wise, okay? And by that I mean I just found out I can no longer fit into my old Navy jeans. You know? So I'm at rock bottom. Um, and the thing is, like, I want to eat healthy. You know what I mean? Like, I want to figure out what the deal is with salad. But, like, I, I don't know how. And I, I think it's, like, I think it's probably because, like, I used to drink to feel pretty. Now I eat to feel nothing, you know? Yeah, I think that's it, you know? I did decide I would go to a nutritionist, though. You know, I said, I was like, go to a professional, spend the money, figure out what you're supposed to do with a shallot, you know? <laughs> I have, unfortunately, uh, made and canceled my appointment twice, okay? But I have a reason. It's because before you go to a nutritionist, you have to keep a food journal. They want you to write down everything you eat and what time you eat it for two weeks straight. And it's like, I get a day and a half into that food journal, and I'm like, I see. (laughs) You know? You know? It's right there in black and white. At which point, I can't justify spending the copay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Bring it to a professional just for them to be like, do you see? <laughs> you know? When last we left Naomi, she was trying to advance her comedy career and also passing out on the subway because she was shit-faced drunk. Unsurprisingly, the latter was not helping the former. And I felt so low. And I was talking to a friend and, you know, obviously, and she had gotten sober. Like, somebody who I was... Not even like she kind of literally popped up into my life in a way that was very serendipitous. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm sober. And I was like, what's that? You know what I mean? And then she was like, well, why don't you just try it? She goes, alcohol will be here when you get back. And she just said, try it. And and I just felt so I was like, I was like, my life cannot just be drinking, going out, trying to hook up, getting up, getting sober becoming emotionally attached to this person I hooked up with, wondering why they won't call, then going out and drinking again to forget about them. It's not a good cycle. Not a good cycle. So where was the depression? Like, what was the level at when you went through all these things that were not especially good for it, like cutting and drinking (laughs) and and all these things? Like, Like, was it being covered up or was it flaring up or what? It was being covered up. I think that... You know, obviously, again, knowing now, um, alcohol is a depressant, and this is not helping you that next day. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely, I think also I used it as a way to really lean into the depression. Not in the moment I was drinking, but that next day, you know, that hangover day, 
It was me taking a sick day. It was me sitting in the house, eating whatever I wanted, laying on the couch or laying in bed. Mm. I and, and so in a way, it was just me letting myself be depressed, but then just saying I drank too much. Naomi is 35 now. The passing out on the subway and subsequent commitment to sobriety, that happened at 26. But here's the thing. Addressing one issue, such as problem drinking, doesn't wipe out all the other issues. Depression, for instance, can still be there. You know, I definitely was like, I'm not drinking anymore. Why do I feel like shit? You know what I mean? And everyone was like, <laughs> you know, it's it's a symptom. Like, it's it's an ism. Like, this is, this is what, like, you know, everything you're feeling is why you drank, right? And I was the whole time, I kept being like, well, I'm sure drinking is the problem. And then you stop drinking and you're like, oh, I'm just left with all the shit I drank over. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm left with... You know, baby didn't have her binky is basically what it felt like that first year. It's like restless, irritable. And I'm just like, and and everything is not fair. And I'm seeing my friends succeed. And why aren't I? And it, like, oh, my God. It was like such a mess. And so it really flared up. But what happened was, again, if I've now taken away the medicine I was using, I had to find new medicine. And so for me, that was... That was definitely like doing, um, like going into recovery programs and meeting people who were also sober. You know, it's like kind of changing my social life and getting with people who are also about improving. I um, really did throw myself into stand up more. You know, I kind of said to myself, okay, this is the thing you want. Let's go. Let's go. In a way that I was like, Doubt, like you know, a couple times a week, or you know, I would do it, but it what I was afraid to let it be the focus. Why? Because I was like, this is the chances are slim to none. I didn't want to look like an idiot. It's like I was like, don't be stupid, you know. And like, the more you invest, the harder you're gonna take it when it doesn't happen, you know, when they don't like you. <laughs> right, because there's this there's this persistent. Uh, bedrock belief that it's all going to go to shit eventually. Yeah. Well, it is. And also, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, it's like so common for people who are creative and pursue this field. There's like nothing less stable. Yeah. And as someone who struggles with anxiety and depression, I think structure is probably best for me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I could probably use structure, and yet nothing makes me feel as good as when the creative stuff is going right. What do you think it is about it that that makes you feel so good? Because I think, you know, most of the people listening to this show don't necessarily want to be comedians, but they would love to get to a place like that. What is it that is doing that for you? Well, I think whatever it is, you know, when I would always say, like, honey, it's like, please, if you don't want to be a comedian, bless, follow the light. Uh, right. um, <laughs> it's like, but anything you could, because even before it was, was stand up, like, I always loved to sing. That was something I liked. And anything that makes you feel present, right? Because it's the depression is like all like everything's awful. I'm doing everything wrong. And the anxiety is everything's going to be awful and I'm going to do everything wrong. And any activity, that just has you in the moment. You know what I mean? If it's like painting, drawing, whatever, and, you know, I'm not saying you can make that your job. I get it. But if you can give yourself, like, 30 minutes of that a day. Naomi Ekperigan's comedy career is on the rise, and it's a delight to watch her perform. She comes across like your friend who has the best stories to tell. 
I live in New York City, a truly lawless place, okay? A city that will break you, you know what I mean? It's like I'm on the subway and a hobo tells me I'm a failure, you know? <laughs> it's like that rough. So it's like I had one of those rough days and all I wanted when I came home, y'all, was Nutella on a potato roll, okay? Okay? Yes, it is simple, it is elegant, all right? And I'm gonna tell you the key to success, okay? You gotta put the potato roll in the toaster oven, all right? Because then you get the Nutella and it's all melty on top, you know what I mean? And then you're like, we're not gonna kill ourselves tonight, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true, it's what you do. You sing it because you're joyful, you know? Just the prospect of the Nutella lifts you up. Lifts you up, okay? So that's all I wanted. I was like planning for it on the way home, okay? So I get in the house, I go right for the kitchen, all right? Put the potato roll in the toaster oven. I know we got the Nutella, it's my house, okay? I go to the cupboard, grab the Nutella, open up the jar of Nutella, was empty! Y'all, do, do you know what it means that the jar was empty? Okay, I'm gonna tell you what it means. It means the man I have chosen to spend my life with thought it was acceptable to put an empty jar of Nutella back in the cup, a decoy Nutella! A decoy Nutella in my house. <laughs> Y'all, I became like Angela Bassett in every movie ever. <laughs> I did. I did. I was just like tricep and anger. <laughs> when you're a black woman comedian, like, there is a part of that. It feels like there is a lineage of sass and attitude and bold and I got right, it and like right. yes queen honey yes and you know and I definitely like will live in that space on stage but it's so important for me to show this other side because again it was seeing that it always made me feel like I was like I can't do it like you know Aparna Nonturla is one of my favorite comics I love how openly she talks with dep- talks about depression but I also think there's there's so many things I think what I had to deal with as a comic and kind of figuring out, once I figured out what I wanted to say, I also had to get in touch with what people think when, what they see when they look at me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, like I'm tall. I do have a loud voice. Like, I can't kind of, I can't, I learned audiences don't respond well to me as sad. Yeah. Like, when I try to do, when I try to kind of talk about that stuff in a dark way, it's not going to get the laugh. And so I was like, okay, this has to come in a different package. And so that package has to be a little bit more effusive. I say it's pretty much like confidently not confident. Yeah. Basically the vibe I'm going for. It's like, I'm a mess. Fuck it. And then it's like, okay, (laughs) we're all going to have fun. Well, it, it, it's funny. I was, I was watching you on, um, with the two dope Queens. They always want to know how we met. They always think it must be some quirky story. Like, was I working as a janitor at a synagogue or something? (laughs) They did. So what is this? How? You know, and it's like, you seem so happy that I, I'm like, 
oh shit, did we book the wrong person? Is this person actually <laughs> depressed? <laughs> I'm, I'm Googling Naomi X. Paragon oh. depression. Oh yeah, there's all the evidence. Okay, we're good. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. But it's also like, John, that's like 10 minutes. Yeah. You can summon it for 10 minutes. Right. This is why like, I'm like, I'm like it's, it's all acting. It's right. all acting. It's, it's just like people. my... It's for the people. It's also just like, you know, doing doing the jokes like like not like again, not that I not that I don't mean them, but it's like, you know, for a given bit, you get into that mentality for the bit. You get sure. into whatever that like anger was initially, or like that fatigue that it was initially, even if you're not there. But it's also like there is something that happens, you know, whenever you got that lights camera action, you're like, all right, I'm on. I'm on. But then literally it's over and I'm like, I'm spent. <laughs> Like, I'm, like, such, like, an old 50s starlet. Like, if you can just imagine, like, I imagine, like, Joan Crawford, uh-huh. um, you know, taking off her powder makeup with a puff, you know, to the end of the day. <laughs> you need a divan to collapse upon. Exactly. Naomi and Andy moved to L.A. for work. I'm just going to call him Andy, not Jubu. Naomi says it's easier to get paid to do comedy there. The move hasn't really taken. No, and I will say it's definitely made the depression harder Yeah. Uh, out here. Because obviously, with this, again, right, structure would be great, but this is a business of ebb and flow. And um, being in a place that is so quiet and sleepy and... Also, where the bulk of my relationships are with people who are also in this field, it makes it hard to disconnect, mm. to take your mind off of, what am I doing? Am I doing enough? Is it going to happen? That's really hard to let go of when, like, every person you know is having the same conversation in their head. Right. Um, yeah, Jim Gaffigan told me one time that that's why he lives in New York, because when he's in L.A., wherever you go, you're at work. Like, the office yeah. is just an entire city. And in New I know, York, you I don't know who you're going to meet. Exactly. And also, I have friends who do other stuff. You know, I, I do have the friends who are teachers and work at nonprofits and are lawyers. And so we can get together. And, you know, they might, like, you know, they're, they're like, are excited about what's going on in my world. But we, like, there's no, like, how'd you get that? You know? <laughs> it's just literally just, like, that sounds so cool. And, and I'm like, show me your baby. And that's it. This is a, a question using words that I didn't expect to be using today. Is Jubu a saddie also? Is he is, <laughs> is he part of the gang? Is Jubu a saddie? No. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> He's not. And I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> He's like neurotic, uh-huh. but it does not it does not manifest itself in this inward, you know, what's wrong with me? It's never going to happen. I think he has the ability to keep on trucking. Yeah. In a way that I'm like, "Wow, wow, wow. What did your parents do?" Is that good for you to be around that kind of thing? Does that help you? Sometimes. Sometimes. I will say, like, you know, I'm, I just, I think I am just going to, at times, I will be wired the way I'm wired if I don't do the things I need to do to kind of keep myself up, you know? Um, I need to, I need to make, like, part of my structure, I need to, like, go out of the house and see, like, a friend at least twice a week. 
in a perfect world, I do stand up at least three times a week. The way I think normal people go to the gym. I need to not sleep until 12. Like, uh-huh. I, I will so easily sleep in, slip into that. And I have got to make myself, you know, I got to be up by 10 a.m. Or else... Or else it's the malaise will set in and I won't be able to get over it and then I'm a piece of trash and it all starts. That's such a, a wonderful showbiz thing. I have to get up at the crack of 10 o'clock. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. No, when I have a job, come on, you know I'd be going to work on time. But when I don't have a job, when I don't have a job, yeah. oh, it's a wrap. It's a wrap. We're talking 12 p.m. Yeah. Breakfast at 1. Sure. Watch your stories. <laughs> What do you know about mental health now that you wish you knew a long time ago? I, what I know now is that to struggle to attain mental health uh, is, is not a shortcoming. It does not mean that you are lacking as a person and that you have some fundamental flaw. And I also know now, you know, as people, as we are more open as a culture, as a society, that a lot more people are struggling than you think are struggling. <laughs> Here's Naomi and Andy from their podcast, Couples Therapy. When My family? To, yeah, when yeah, I yeah. go to the Beckermans, I like to be like, girl, what you up to, Norma? I like to like jazz it up. I like to kind of jazz them. You had, you, the first time we ever, my family ever had a real conversation was because of you. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sister was dating this total toad. And, <laughs> I'm and like, cut no, this out. Yeah, no one was saying anything about it. And you started a conversation. She then eventually broke up with him months later. Well, sometimes you get around groups of whites and you end up taking an Oprah <laughs> status in the group. You don't do it on purpose. You just get people opening up. You get them opening up. And you get to the bottom of some things. <laughs> yeah, you are our personal Oprah. That's what it was. <laughs> Naomi Ekparrigan is on Twitter at Blackdress. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media crackerjack. Kate Moose is executive producer, technical director this time around, John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller, No Relation, who has a new album out called The Messenger, and I like listening to that album. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on a topic like that, yeah, it can be awkward. But Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. Stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. You can find all our previous episodes there. You can also go to HilariousWorld.org slash donate to make a donation. Keep this show strong. Keep this show going. And pick up one of our lovely thank you gifts, such as the Depressed State t-shirt, the Hilarious World socks, or the enamel pin. 
We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, cartoonist, humorist, and academic Johnny Sun comes across very positive in his writing. And I think a lot of that is not me being happy and writing this, but it's me being in a depressive state or me being very um, unhappy and writing this as like an aspirational thing. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know